Good morning and welcome to the virtual ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen and I am the lead pastor here at New Hope. Before we jump into our text this morning and our teaching time, there are just two things I wanted to remind you of. One is that we are meeting in person now. I mean, if you're watching this at the premiere, we are also meeting in person and I'm preaching the same sermon there. So as soon as you are comfortable coming out, we would love to have you in person at church with us. The second thing, if you're a member of New Hope, on January 24th at 3 p.m., we will be having our annual congregational meeting, and of course that will be by Zoom. And if you want the information for that Zoom call, we'll be sending it out in our Loop newsletter. So if you don't get the Loop newsletter, um, sign up for that on our website, and then you will be in the Loop. So with all of that said, I believe this is number 27 in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, and it's entitled A Little Girl and a Poor Frail Lady. One of my favorite stories. And um, before we jump in, I thought I would start with a question. Now, I wouldn't start with just one question. Why don't we do 10 questions today? And the questions are all would you rather questions, right? There, there, a game came out some time ago, years ago, uh, called Would You Rather? And the game was horrible, but the questions were always fun. And the questions are always, you know, would you rather do this or would you rather do that? Or would you rather be this or would you rather be that? And so I put together some would you rather questions. Some of them are easy and some of them are, are two good choices that are hard. Some of them are two bad choices that are hard. Um, so yeah, let me jump right in. First question. Would you rather live in a cabin in Alaska or on a tropical island? Now, if I had to answer that question, I would say it depends what time of year. If it was the summer, I might pick a cabin in Alaska. If it was the winter, I might pick a tropical island. How about this one? Would you rather give up air conditioning and heating for the rest of your life or give up the internet for the rest of your life? That would be difficult. That, that because you're sort of without the internet, you wouldn't even be watching this video. You might be warm. How about this? Would you rather team up with Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel? Now, for those of you who don't know, Captain Marvel is also a woman. And to me, that is an easy, 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 easy decision. But I'm not going to answer it. Secondly, would you rather, or next, would you rather have the power of invisibility or the ability to fly? Personally, I think flying. If you've ever read the book, The Invisible Man, you know that never goes well. Next, would you rather have a personal maid or a personal chef? I don't know. I'd have to ask my wife about that one. Would you rather talk like Yoda or breathe like Darth Vader? No, not I do. <laughs> Would you rather be able to freeze time or travel back in time? I might freeze time because then I could like get out of traffic and stuff, I think. Would you rather forget your partner's birthday or your anniversary every year? Well, I'm sorry, Judy, because one of the other of those happens almost every year in our house. Last one. And this is in the honor of my cat, Juniper. Would you rather drink from a toilet or pee in a litter box? Now, 
If Juniper had the power of speech, she would probably say, please, please don't make me make that choice. <laughs> now, why, why did I go through all that? Why did I talk about would you rather do this or would you rather do that? Well, let me ask you this because it really bears on our text. Would you rather um, live for 12 years and then die or be treated like you were dead for 12 years but be alive. Okay? Would you rather live for 12 years and then die or be treated like you were dead for 12 years even though you were alive? Well, the characters in our story today, they don't get to make the decision. It's, it's not hypothetical for them. One of them lives for 12 years and dies and the other one is dead for 12 years, practically speaking, even though she's alive, right? So we're talking, of course, about Jairus's daughter and the woman with an issue of blood. So let me, um, why don't I pray for us? And then we'll jump right in to the text. Father, I pray that you would um, come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. So just by way of background, it, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, just prior to this story of Jairus' daughter and the woman with an issue of blood, Jesus has sort of been showing off. Or it, it's probably better to say that Luke has been showing off Jesus to us in that right, what, what has just happened um, is that Jesus has, has crossed the Sea of Galilee and he calmed the storm. Right. And, and he said, peace, be still. And the disciples said, who is this? That even the wind and waves obey him. So he showed his authority over nature. And then they get to the to the Gadarenes and the Gerasenes rather. And the, the Gerasene demoniac comes out, Legion. Um, and Jesus um, performs an exorcism on this guy, Legion. And remember, the demons go into the pigs and they go off the cliff. And the people on that side of of the Sea of Galilee, the east side, they're like, okay, um, please leave. They were like scared. They didn't want Jesus to be there. Now, the people on the other side of Galilee, they had heard things are going on and they wanted to see Jesus. And so when he showed up on their shore, they were like all waiting. There was huge crowds, apparently. And so Jesus has shown his, just in this, right before this text, has shown his authority over nature and he has shown his authority over the spiritual realm. And today we see him show his authority over disease and even death. And we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at a dying daughter. We're going to look at a sanctified interruption. And finally, we're going to have a call to faith that Jesus is going to give to Jairus and ultimately even to us. So let me read to you the first part here. And starting at verse 40, it says, Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, basically, the, so Jesus returns to the, to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. People are just waiting for him to get there. 
and he arrives and first thing it says there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus feet he implored him to come to his house so Jesus arrives on the shore there's just incredible crowds there and in the middle midst of the crowd there comes this man named Jairus and there are at least six things that you notice about Jairus that are important because we're going to compare Jairus with the woman at the end of this text in a bit. So the first thing you notice about Jairus, it says in verse 41, there came a man named Jairus. In the ancient Near East, in Jesus' time, if it was preferable to be a man or a woman just by way of the power structures of the world, being a man was the best thing to be, right? It was a patriarchy. And so he was a man. And he had a name. His name was Jairus. And not only that, but he was powerful enough, apparently, to be able to part a crowd. In, in other words, if you have just crowds around Jesus and one guy is able to walk right through the crowd and get straight in front of Jesus, he must have had some kind of social capital. He must have been powerful enough in people's mind that whatever he said they needed to do, like, get out of my way. So the next thing we see is that it says that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, what, did, what were rulers of the synagogues? They, they weren't like the bosses, really. The rulers of the synagogue would be analogous to what we in the Presbyterian church would call uh, trustees or facility maintenance team. In other words, they were, he, he would have been part of the team um, that kept the synagogue going, physically speaking, that kept the the, the building up that kept uh, most even primarily and maybe most importantly, they would have taken care of the Torah scrolls. If you've ever been to a synagogue and seen them read the Torah, it's very um, meticulous the way that the scrolls are taken care of. And that would have been his job. So he's a ruler in the synagogue and he's also clearly desperate. Now, how do we know that he is desperate? It's not just that he comes and asks Jesus for help, but it's that he comes and asks for Jesus' help. In other words, if you remember the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels at all, um, the rulers of the synagogue, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers, they are no friend of Jesus. They, they in fact, have been plotting to kill him. And so you have to imagine Jairus, who is a complete insider. I mean, he is on the very inside of the Jewish world and the Jewish religion. And also he had to have heard whispers and he might even participated in discussions about, okay, we got to kill this guy, Jesus. He's just doing too many things. Well, at some point, Jairus apparently was at the end of his rope. And he had no other option, at least in his mind. He said, you know what? I've tried everything to get to see my daughter healed. And if I have to go against all of my religious brethren, if I have to, to bear the consequences of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other rulers of the synagogue in order to get my daughter healed, I will do it. And he goes to Jesus in the day, broad daylight. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he also was a Pharisee and he approached Jesus, but he did it at night, like sort of in an alley. He, you know, he didn't want other people to know that he was asking Jesus anything. Jairus, on the other hand, he has gotten to a point of desperation where he doesn't care. 
He goes to Jesus, it says, and he fell at his feet and implored him, begged him to come to his house. And he said, because he has an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now, what Jairus doesn't know is that his daughter is already dead. In other words, she probably died. We'll find out sometime while he was in transit from his house to find Jesus, she's dead. And since she is already dead, another problem arises is the fact that she is now unclean. And you think unclean isn't that big of a deal, but unclean is sort of what governs this whole part of the text, the story. Because if she is unclean, then Jesus, why would Jesus go at all? I mean, if she was dead, if she was unclean, he's a rabbi. Rabbis don't touch dead things. It's over. And so if, she, if she's unclean, that's a, that's a problem. Now, fortunately for Jairus, Jesus isn't like me. <laughs> In other words, if someone from a group of people who had been plotting to kill me and did nothing but give me a hard time and were literally looking for ways to end my life, came to me and said, hey, can you do me a solid? Can you do me a favor and help my daughter? You know, I might say, you know, I would love to help your daughter. But can we talk about this whole like trying to kill me thing? Can we talk about this? or Jesus doesn't do that. It just says Jesus went with him. Now, what's also important to notice is that Jesus went. He didn't have to. We see all over the New Testament, sometimes Jesus um, heals people at a distance. He says, go, your son is well, or go, find your servant. He's well. He does it just sort of over the airwaves. And for some reason here, Jesus accompanies Jairus. He goes with him. And it says at the end of verse uh, 42, it says, the people pressed around him. So it is so crowded that Jesus, there are people touching Jesus all over the place. It's like being at at maybe a rock concert or something. And people are pressing in on Jesus. Jairus, his heart must have thought, oh, this is so awesome. This teacher's going to come with me. and, And if he can heal my daughter, if he can help. And the crowd is pressing around him. And then suddenly, probably to Jairus's horror, there is an interruption. There's an interruption. Something stops Jesus. And what Jairus doesn't know is that this is a sanctified interruption. I mean, I put myself in Jairus' shoes sometimes, and I think, you know, it's like when you're at a party with someone who's a super extrovert. Like, I tend to be an extrovert until I'm not anymore, and usually that's when I'm getting tired and it's late. And You've ever been to a party with an extrovert, and you're trying to leave, and they're talking to every person on the way, and it's like, oh, please, let's just go. Imagine Jairus. He's, he's got Jesus, and they're going to his house to heal his daughter, and then something happens to stop him. And Jesus wants to get all chit-chatty, and Jesus wants to ask questions. Jairus had to be thinking, oh, let's just go, let's go, let's go, let's go. What happens? It says in verse 43, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She had come up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you, and you're 
and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, think about this woman for a minute. This woman is not a man, for one. Just we compare her with Jairus. So he was a man. She's a woman. So, so in a patriarchal society, that would have put her at some disadvantage with regard to the power structures of the day. Um, Jairus has a name, and this woman has no name. We're, we are not given her name. Jairus is powerful. He is able to walk through a crowd and they move out of his way so he can look Jesus in the face and implore him for help. This woman is meek. She has no standing in the crowd. You get the idea that she was sort of shoving her way and pushing her arm through people just so she could get to the hem of Jesus' garment. Jairus is the ultimate insider. We've said that. She is the ultimate outsider, which will become clear in a moment why that's the case. And she's desperate. She's desperate just like Jairus is desperate. Why is she so desperate? Well, she, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Um, we don't know exactly why she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. A lot of scholars um, speculate that she might have had something like an obstetric fistula which um, I'm not a doctor, but basically without medical attention or without modern hospitals, a, a fistula happens when a woman has a baby that's too big and it won't come out. And eventually tissue starts to die and it sort of just ruins everything below her waist. Probably, usually she would lose the child as well. And so like, this woman would have, would have if, if that was the case, um, not only would she have had this issue of bleeding, she probably would have lost a child in it. She probably would have lost her husband, uh, ultimately, as a result of this. And we know from the text that she, lost all, she spent all of her money. It says there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And the, the way Mark puts it, in Mark's version of this story, he says that, that she spent all her money on physicians and not only was not healed, but got worse. In, in other words, she got worse as, with, with each seeing each physician, not better. And her biggest problem, though, the, the, the problem that this illness or this condition would have caused her is the fact that it would have made her unclean. Remember, that was the problem that Jairus' daughter is going to have ultimately. This was this woman's problem at all. In other words, being for a woman in Levitical law, when she was um, menstruating, she would have been unclean for seven days. That means anything she touched would have been considered unclean. She couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't, you know, couldn't do a number of things. And so imagine a woman who for 12 years straight has been menstruating, has been having this issue 
of blood. She would have been uh, barred from going into the synagogue because she's unclean. She wouldn't have been living with anyone because everything she touched would have been unclean and they would have become unclean. It would have ruined her life. It would have made her unclean. It would have made her unlovable. It would have made her unapproachable. It would have made her unacceptable. Think of an un, and that's what uncleanness did to this woman. And she's poor and she's got nothing. She's desperate. And she is in the same boat as Jairus. So where does that, what's going to happen? Well, verse 44, it says, She comes up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And then that doesn't surprise us. What surprises us maybe is that in verse 45, Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? (laughs) Like you just wonder, who was it that touched me? And I love the fact that it says when all denied it, (laughs) people were crowding around him. Of course, everyone was touching him. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and you are, are pressing in on you. People remind me of like the, the, the rats in uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, right? Like, who touched me? Not us, not us, not us, no one. And Peter's like, okay, Lord, everyone is touching you. What are you talking about? And he said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And... Jesus basically, it, we get this idea that he just, he want, he waited and he, he like eyeballed her because she's, she clearly says in verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, somehow she knew that he knew that it was her. And it says when, when she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people while she, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So, I don't know how Jesus knew someone touched him, other than he felt power go out of him. But the big question is, why is he doing this? Why is he calling out this woman? Why is he bringing attention to her? Why doesn't he just let her go and be healed? And the the answer is, because her miracle isn't finished yet. You see, she was healed But Jesus wants everyone else to know that she was healed. She was healed physically, but Jesus wants everyone else to know that she is now clean. In other words, Jesus is calling her out not to embarrass her, but he is calling her out, in fact, to finish the miracle. Because the miracle would not be complete if she couldn't go to church any, uh, uh, anymore. If she couldn't, you know, live in a manner that was now socially acceptable. And what Jesus is going to do is basically proclaim her clean. Your faith has made you well. You are good to go now. And it says she couldn't know that he was doing that. Verse 47 it says she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why he had, she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now, why would she be trembling when she comes to Jesus? I think it's because she was afraid. She was afraid that she would be rebuked because she was unclean and she has just touched a rabbi. And she would have been expecting some kind of rebuke, like, woman? You understand what you've just done? Like you're unclean and I'm getting ready to go to this guy's house to heal his daughter and now I can't even go in the house. 
You have soiled me. Now I can't go heal his daughter. You have ruined everything. I mean, she, I only imagine that what she was thinking, what was going on. And instead, he doesn't say that. What does he say to her? He says in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, the most important word in that sentence is the word daughter. Why is that word so important? If you think about it, this woman was about as far on the outside as you can get. No synagogue, no family, no home, no money, no anything. And now Jesus is basically saying, you've gone from complete outside to the complete inside. Daughter, you are part of the family now. And your faith has made you well. You see, the reason Jesus wasn't mad that she touched him, and the reason Jesus wasn't mad that in her uncleanness she gave it to him, as it were, is because that's why he came. He came to take our uncleanness. And he didn't, he didn't come to avoid it, but he came to take it. And Jesus came for people who are broken and who are desperate and don't have anywhere else to turn. He came for those people. Right? Remember when he said in, in Mark chapter 2, he says that it's not the, the people who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And so the Son of Man has come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus isn't mad at this woman. He is, is, is rejoices with her because she has shown faith in who he is. Now, here's a great side note. I already told you she didn't have a name. Is we eventually learn her name. You know, church history isn't authoritative, but there's strong tradition that her name, this woman's name, was Bernice. Like after her healing, people learned who she was. Apparently, she was a very active church member in the, in the, the early church. But she has gone from not having a name to having a name. So from now on, I will call her Bernice. And so Jairus at this point has to be anxious. I mean, imagine him standing there. He's gone to get Jesus because his daughter is on her deathbed. And now here's Jesus chit-chatting with Bernice, sort of lollygagging around. And he, he had to be thinking, come on, I just want to go, I just want to go. But he couldn't really complain because Jesus was doing him a favor. And in the, in the process of him standing there and being anxious, a servant comes up to him. And what does the servant say? It says, verse 49, while he was speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Man, can you imagine how much his heart must have sunk? Him thinking we were almost there. We were right on the edge of getting her healed. This guy, I wonder if he could, he could have done it. And the servant says he's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Now, what Jairus didn't know and couldn't know was that the, the completion of Bernice's miracle was actually the beginning of his. That the completion of Bernice's miracle was the beginning of his, that the, that the biggest, most inconvenient, most ill-timed interruption was possibly the most important event in his life. Because right now, 
imagine if that whole event with Bernice did not happen and they had just been walking and the servant came up and said, your, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. What would Jairus have done then? What, would, what, what point of reference would he have had that Jesus could help his daughter really at that point? And yet he had seen with his own eyes this rabbi Jesus heal this woman of this issue of blood that she had for 12 years and proclaim her clean and proclaim her, her being a daughter and all these kinds of things. In, in other words, her story was important to his story that Bernice's story was integral, was crucial to Jairus's story. Without him seeing what Jesus had the ability to do and without him saying to, to hear him hearing with his own ears, Jesus saying to Bernice, um, your faith has made you well, that, that, that your faith is what has, has saved you. He doesn't say it exactly like that. He says, your faith has made you well, go in peace. That there was now hope for him. Now, as a side note, it's interesting that the other thing that we tend to forget is that Bernice's story is so helpful because it is a told story, or at least it was a seen story. In other words, a lot of us have things that, that have happened in our life, and we've had these great moments of redemption, or maybe, maybe you're a person who, who has recovered from addiction, or maybe you're, you're, you're a person who, who has... Um, seeing your marriage saved and restored, and yet we never tell people about that. I, always, I think that's interesting because I think we don't tell people because we're afraid to, to admit that we had the problem in the first place. Bernice didn't have that opportunity, but let me encourage you, share your story with somebody. If, you, if God has redeemed you and restored you, share that. There is someone out there that needs to hear it. And there's someone out there for whom it might be the difference between them having faith and them not having faith, them making it, them trusting Jesus or not trusting Jesus. Your story is crucial. Now, back to this story. Um, as we consider this call to, to faith, it says in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So Jesus doesn't even give him the opportunity to speak. He says, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be well. In other words, Jairus, you've got to have faith. What is going to save your daughter, what is going to make her well, is the same thing that made Bernice well. And that is faith in my ability to do what I promised I could do. Have faith, she will be well. And it says, um, verse 51, it says, When they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, James, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep for her. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. I love it in Mark, it says, Talitha Kumi, um, child arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. 
but he charged them to tell no one what he had happened. So they get to the house and there are mourners there. In ancient Israel, um, when someone died, you needed to have at least two mourners. And if the more wealthy you were, the more mourners you could hire. So these people were like professional criers. Um, they didn't necessarily care that this person had died. I, I think that's obvious from the fact that they're mourning and they're weeping. And then Jesus says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. At least to me, she's sleeping. And instead of, they go immediately from mourning to laughing at him. Now, the beauty of the gospel is in the end, Jesus always has the last laugh. So he kicks everyone out except Peter, James, and John. I assume so they could see what's going on. Someone had to tell this story and the mother and the father. And he says to her, child, arise. Or Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. And it says her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. Imagine Jairus seeing that. And imagine how that affected him. Imagine um, his faith now for the rest of his life. Do you think Jesus earned a follower in Jairus through this, these events? Do you think Jairus was disappointed that Bernice had been healed? Of course not. Of course not. Um, verses 54 says, child arise, her spirit returned. Verse 56, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let me read to you how the Jesus Storybook Bible ends this. Jesus says, Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she just had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and the sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry, Jesus asked. She nodded. Jesus called her family. Bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. Wow. Now the question is, why at the end does Jesus say, don't tell anyone what happened here? And the answer most scholars think, which seems to be obvious, is that Jesus' primary mission was not healing. Or it wasn't these sort of one-off healings. Jesus' primary mission, according to him, was to seek and save that which is lost. And Jesus' primary mission was not just to make one person at a time clean, but his mission ultimately was to go to the cross, to bear all of our uncleanness, that whoever would have faith in him might be clean, to, to take all of us outsiders and to bring us inside. You see, um, let me end with this. Let me ask you a, a, a final would you rather pair. And so the, the question, would you rather um, live in guilt, shame, and fear, <laughs> wondering what's going to happen next, or even if anyone cares, or... Would you rather live as a son or daughter of a great God who loves you and accepts you and even rejoices over you because what Jesus has done? To me, that's an easy decision. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would come and again, you would open our eyes to see um, where we need 
Jesus. I pray also um, for those people with stories to tell that you would give them courage to tell them that they might encourage the rest of us with your faithfulness to them and give us hope of your faithfulness toward us as well. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, at this point in the service, we if you're not coming to live services, we're not having an offertory now because it's not allowed. Um, but we are doing a musical meditation time. So, you know, take time to, to meditate on that which you've just heard. Um, if you're interested in giving, um, you can find the information below in the description. Here at church, we have a box in the back where people can give if they want to give that way. Most people, I think, are giving electronically or sending things in. Either way, thank you for your faithful support of our ministry. And with that said, I thought I would end today with a profession of faith from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the catechism says this. The question is, question 55, how does Christ intercede? In other words, how does, how does he intercede with the Father for us? And it says... Christ intercedes by continually appearing in our human nature before the Father in heaven. There he makes his will clear that his own merit of obedience and sacrifice on earth be applied to all believers. He answers all the accusations against believers and makes sure they have peace of conscience in spite of their daily failings. And he welcomes them without hesitation to the throne of grace and accepts who they are and what they do for him. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this virtual place in the words of Zephaniah, who said, The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love. And the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Leave this place in the peace of his knowledge. Amen and amen. Have a great week.